got to look at disdain is what you got. Uh, so, I love, come on, oh my God, is this thing frozen? No. There, I love, fill in the blank, what immediately comes to your mind? Uh, all right, you got it? Don't say it out loud, you'll be embarrassed. Um, you know, what comes to your mind when you give the answer you're supposed to give? But if you do this again and again, I, I had this, did this exercise today. And just without judgment, God knows your heart already anyway, so you're not lying to him. But if you were to say, I love, and the first thing that comes to your mind can be truly self-educational. And uh, so what we're going to get at today is we're exploring the word agape in the scripture is the fact that we are to love God. And although and this is way more depicted in the Gospels than it is in the epistles. And, uh, and we're going to, as we continue, I think we'll, we'll discover why. And, and that we talked about that on Sunday. But, um, you know, the, the love of God manifests itself in our faithful obedience to him. And... And that's why it is vital that we do. It is vital. If we're going to carry out uh, what we're called to do, which is lifelong, right? This We're not going to get where Christ wants us to be in a year or two uh, or ten or twenty. It, yeah, it takes a life. And it, it's a life of dedication uh, a life of obedience. It's a servant in the house who serves until he dies. And, you know, how are we going to maintain that? And Jesus is going to make clear to us today that the way we're going to maintain that is to actually love him. So let's open up in prayer. Let's uh, thank God for our time here to explore this super important subject. As we know, it's, uh, it is an enormous uh, subject in the scripture. And so as we turn to the Father and uh, seek his wisdom to each of us, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your love of us. We know, Father, that we would not never love you if you did not first love us. You loved us by giving us your Son. You so loved the world that you gave your Son. That agape love is a love for every member of the human race. A love in which you sacrificed, you gave of yourself, knowing full well that many would reject you. You spread seed on bad soil, knowing that it wouldn't grow. You allowed tares to grow with the wheat. And though we are wheat, Father, then you have asked us to love others and to spend a life in service of you. We have in our own selves passions, desires, wants, and they conflict. They get in the way with what you have called us to be and called us to do. And so we turn to your word again today to find, Father, the strength and the faith to overcome the things that would hold us back from being what you have eternally called us to be. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his gospel and his love, through the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's open up with 1 John chapter 4, and then we're going to go to the gospel of John. 1 John chapter 4. So the question becomes, in a more theological sense, that in what theology is, is, and theology is necessary, what theology is, is, well, what the word is, a study of God, right? Theo is God, and ology is a study of. But theology is our human way of, I shouldn't say human, hopefully under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, we're trying to discern the message of the Scripture, 
And generally, when we do that, we put it in categories. And we have to do that. If it's, we wouldn't be able to discern it very well if we just, you know, willy-nilly threw it down on, on paper. And so we kind of break up theology into its constituent parts. There's a theology of mankind. There's a theology of God. There's a theology of creation. There's a theology of salvation. There's a theology of the cross and so on. And there's a theology of love. And, and this would make sense because love is such a prominent aspect of the scripture. You know, and, and it becomes a very interesting topic because human beings naturally love. And it's, it's really interesting it's, it, to me. You know, I get fascinated by things like that of, you know, why do people love what they love? And they, we do, you know, is it... Is lustful desire a love? Is an addiction or something like that a true love? I mean, it's a want, but is it a love? And, you know, what what is love? And that becomes, uh, of course, probably something that's been debated for a long, long time. So the question becomes, you know, when it comes to agape, we're to love others, and that is by far the great emphasis in the epistles of the New Testament outside the Gospels and the writings of Paul, Peter, and John, that we are to agape love the whole human race. And as we have been noting in the last few classes, that is to be unmotivated, spontaneous, not calculating, just do it. We're given of ourselves to all just like Christ did. And it scares us to death to do it. That's why a lot of us don't do it. And that's why I haven't done it. And it's, it's scary. And yet, here comes the love of God. Because it's the love of God, though not spoken about as near as much in the New Testament, but we do find in our relationship to God what is spoken about the most is our faith. And if frequency of of what is related in the scripture has any meaning, and I think it does, is that the the New Testament writers want us to focus on our faith to God. And I, I find a reason for this, at least personally, is that I can sit around dreamily thinking about how much I love God and really not doing anything that he tells me to do. And then I'm fooling myself. Because that kind of love like a long-distance relationship. Let's say, I really love this guy or this girl. We've been pen pals for years, and I never met them. And, you know, we're so in love, and we write these wonderful love letters back and forth. And that's fine, you know. But is that our relationship to God? And we, you know, and we can imagine it that way, that we have this kind of pen pal love relationship with him. And so we can just sit around dreamily thinking about how much we love God and how awesome he is, which is fine. But, you know, the emphasis in the scripture is faith, and faith does things. You know, faith acts upon that which we're told. And Jesus, uh, in the Gospels, ties this to love. If you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. Uh, So... You know, theologically speaking then, should we love God first and then love people? And this has caught up a lot of people because we think, well, you know, sorry, I can't really do good for you right now because I'm still learning how to love God, right? So I have the perfect excuse to say, you know, I should serve you, but I can't because I don't love God yet. And uh, this becomes simply a scapegoat. So look at 1 John 4.19. John writes, we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So if we're speaking of order here, we would say to ourselves that, well, we're supposed to love people first before God. Doesn't it seem that way? It says, says, for the one who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. In other words, if I don't love you who I can see right in front of me, I can't love invisible God. And we think, well, wait a minute. (laughs) 
how, uh, you know, I'm supposed to work, am I supposed to work on loving others first? But fortunately, John clarifies for us in the next line. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And you see, therefore, John makes this quite simple. I say I love God, but I don't love you. John says you're a liar. You don't love God. I say I love you. If I'm not a lover of God, I'm a liar. I don't really love you if I'm not a lover of God. And there's nothing here that is emphasized by John about order. It really shows us that love is love. The love of God is the love of others and vice versa. They don't have, we don't have one here in some kind of magic formula that comes first before the other. They're both, they're both love. And this is a great insight for us. That there isn't a different love for the Father and a different love for you. Right? And, and this actually enters our minds because we read in the Gospels, the Lord says, there's two great commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. But he also said the second one is like the first. So are these two commandments? Well, we put a question mark there, ponder that, and then we go to the New Testament and we read Paul saying, the love of your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. He doesn't mention the love for God. He just goes right to commandment number two, and Paul seems to just pass over commandment number one. And we think, Paul, you know, why aren't you agreeing with Jesus? And then with some further study and further insight, we find out that Paul is not only agreeing with Jesus, but he is actually taking the, the, what Jesus has revealed and bringing it to its absolute height. And that the love of God is the love of our neighbor. It's the same thing. It's our love. When we love God, we love our neighbor. When we love our neighbor, we love God. It's not anything different. They're not two commandments. They're one. And yet, so why does Paul not highlight the love of God as much as Jesus does? It's because Paul is highlighting the faith that we have towards God. Because faith does stuff. Now, it doesn't mean that he ignores the love of God. He just makes the love of God what it is. Because our love for God is a response. Whereas my love for you is not a response. My love for you is right to you based on what is in me. I'm not calculating. I'm not here saying, all right, they deserve love and they don't. Or they deserve some love and they deserve more and they deserve less because of their whatever, their background, their history, their sinfulness, their goodness, whatever. I say, no, I don't calculate anything. I give God's love to you, whoever you are, friend or enemy. But in my love for God, has to be a response to God. I don't love God like that. As if God deserves my love or that there's no quality in God that I would first consider before I love him. Of course I do. And John says it here. We love because he first loved us. And when he first loved us, as John expands upon in this epistle quite a bit, is that the love of God is manifested in the cross of Christ. He loved us, so he gave us his son. Right? This incredible Sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Reckless love. And so the right, the thing that we have to emphasize with God is faith to do what he's told us to do no matter what. But we find out that that faith is love for him. Therefore, it's not this this robotic, all right, God has a list of things for me to do. I better do them or he's going to smash me. Or, you know, take my rewards away, or he's going to make me sick, or he's going to curse me, or whatever. We say, no, 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 no. I'm going to do what he has called me to do, because I love him more than anybody else. And in that way, it is true love for him. So go to John 21. Now, where today's lesson came from 
was my work on phileo love. I don't know if you know these words, and sometimes quite a bit is made of the difference between the two, is that the New Testament has two words for love. Uh, they're both translated love. Phileo is where we get our word like philanthropy or Philadelphia. Philadelphia is brotherly love. Uh, that word is in the New Testament as well. Philadelphia is exactly written the same. Phileo love is more so a love of friendship, a love of attraction, a love of uh, uh, feeling, a, a desire to do or be with someone uh, because of, say, more personal reasons. Uh, and we're going to spend a class looking at that. I can't teach you phileo and do this passage on the love of God in the same class. It's too much information. <clears throat> so we're going to get to phileo coming up. I would tell you first and foremost that uh, the word phileo is used by Paul twice. Paul uses agape over a hundred times. He uses phileo twice. He doesn't hardly use it at all. The other two times in the New Testament epistles we find it is in the book of Revelation. It's used by Paul twice. It's used by John in Revelation twice. And 21 times it's used in the Gospels. 21 out of you know, multiple times where agape is used. But it's more so used in the Gospels. And out of all the, the four Gospels, John's the one who uses it the most. And this is one of the places that he uses it. Uh, John uses phileo 13 times. And four of those 13 times are in this passage right here. And that's why some scholars find this passage fascinating for the fact that you know, both phileo and agape are used. Now, we should also say that John in his gospel will use phileo and agape at times interchangeably. And so to John, we can't say, does he mean two different kinds of love? Well, we, we can't determine that, you know, not with any certainty. So let's see it. So uh, verse 15, John 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Notice he doesn't call him Peter. He uses his birth name. Um, why he does that is anyone's guess, I would say. <laughs> There's some opinion on that, but I, I don't like opinion when it comes to especially the words of Christ. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Jesus says, do you love me? He says, agape. When Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter uses phileo. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon said, and of course we know that Jesus doesn't have sheep, right? So he's talking about Christians, that Peter's going to be an apostle. He is an apostle and a minister to believers. Tend my lambs. Those are believers in the church. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Agape again. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Phileo again. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Here, Jesus changes it to phileo. Peter was grieved that he had said to him a third time, do you Phileo me, and he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I, and you would think, right, logically, Peter's going to now come back with agape. No, he doesn't. He uses phileo all three times. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Peter's response is always phileo. Jesus uses agape the first two times, phileo the third time. <clears throat> so perhaps what we want to first recognize is how the Lord is already restoring, after already restoring Peter to fellowship, is three times affirming Peter's love. I mean, it seems odd, does it not? If Peter says, yeah, I love you, then ask him again, yeah, I love you, and then ask him a third time, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I love you, but we remember that Peter denied the Lord three times. 
is very likely not payback by any means that Jesus says, all right, you denied me three times, you jerk, you know, now tell me you love me as if Jesus needs this. But Jesus has given Peter likely the opportunity to publicly, because the other disciples are there, to publicly affirm his love. Jesus is going to leave him, right? Jesus is resurrected here. They're in Galilee. Jesus is going to ascend very soon. Within a day or two, Jesus will be gone, and Jesus will leave Peter. Peter won't see Jesus until he dies, and Peter is going to be a leader amongst the apostles. So Jesus is allowing Peter to affirm his love so that for the rest of his life he can do what he's called to do. Feed the sheep. Tend the sheep. And this is incredibly endearing and exciting that Jesus rested the whole future of the work that he had begun at such a price Right, we th- it's, it's, I don't always think of this, but Jesus dies, right? He does this incredible work, and then he passes the torch. Like that's why I use this picture. He passes the torch to these these guys, and he's gone, and he ain't coming back until the church is over. And now, two thousand years later, and hence the church has continued on. He handed the torch to these guys. But what did he ask of them? He didn't ask them to sign a declaration of laws. He didn't ask them to sign a job description. He didn't ask them to become scholars. He didn't ask them to promise him that they would do the job right. And if they don't, he's going to find someone else, you know. He didn't do anything like that. What did he ask Peter? Do you love me? (coughs) And that's what the Lord wanted to know, which, of course, he already knew. You see, this love for the Lord will mean our devotion to his goodness. Will we get it right all the time? And that we're going to talk about here coming up in a minute. Uh, No, neither did Peter. We find Peter failing pretty miserably after this in the book of Acts. But Peter does fantastic. He does. Um, so anyway, is there a difference between the interchange of phileo and agape? We'd be guessing. Uh, really great scholars write about this, and they don't agree. So if the really good scholars don't agree, that should tell us something. That you know we shouldn't make much of it, and some people do. And I think when you do that, you miss the point, or at least you you put yourself in danger of missing the point. Uh, what is not also <clears throat> often, which is not told is that there's two different words for flock, there's two different words for sheep, and there's two different words for tend uh, that John uses. And so, you know, do they have meaning? There's no way we can confirm that. So, what is the issue here is Peter's love. With all things aside, what word describes your connection to the Lord? Beyond the difference between the words for love, the question is way more narrow, but the word, uh, but the narrow question has a broad meaning. Here's the question. Do you love me? Laying aside the questions of what is Peter willing to do? What is he willing to sacrifice? Jesus doesn't go into that. He doesn't say to him, you know, you know Peter, you're going to have to go through a lot. You know, and he tells him that. Uh, just coming up after this, that Peter's going to die. But, you know, what does the Lord say to Peter? He just says, follow me, follow me. Well, what does that mean? He doesn't say, Peter, are you willing to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Are you willing to do all of these things? Because this is what you're going to have to do. He doesn't even ask him if he's willing to die. He just says, you are going to die. And follow me, even though you're going to be martyred. The question is, beyond laying all that aside, do you love me? So if you and I separate ourselves from all other things, all other people, like in my opening slide, I love blank. 
If you look straight at the Lord in His person, and I think for a lot of Christians, the Lord's so distant at the right hand of God, they say, oh, yeah, 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 I love Him. Sure, I love Him. If anybody asks Him, do you love the Lord? Well, of course, I'm a Christian. But there's a reason Jesus asks Him three times. The first response could be a superficial, uh, you know, kind of, yeah, Lord, of course, of course I love you. You know, sure I do, sure I do. And it's not too bold a statement to say that Christianity depends on this answer. The, the very basis of Christianity depends on our answer to this question. As we have seen, the love of God is a motivator of faith. What is Christianity about if it's not faith? If you love me, the Lord said in John 14, 15 and 23... You'll keep my commandments. And that's one of my favorite passages in the Bible is that 1423 where Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I and my Father will build our home with you. Just the whole idea of me living in a home for the rest of my life that was built by the Father and the Son, that jazzes me quite a bit. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Uh, so, ask three times. Jesus doesn't want our superficial answer. He wants to get to the very heart of us. Uh, we could say it out of duty. You know, I'm supposed to love you, so I love you. And, you know, that, for all of us, I think we all go through that stage. Because loving what we'll find here, and we find it in our main passage in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, where Paul commends the Thessalonians because their faith has increased and their love has abounded, meaning that they love still more, just like he asked them, <coughs> excuse me, just like he told them to do in the first epistle. He said, you know that you are to love and you are loving in 1 Thessalonians 4. He said, you are loving, but then he says, increase still more, you know, excel more at love. I think we all go through the stage where we just love God out of duty, or at least we say we do. But here, this is truly to the heart of it. Christianity, if we define it, we're going to define it a couple times today, is to faith to do God's will in all circumstances to all people. That's a good definition of Christianity. The faith to do God's will in all circumstances and to all people. I mean, I'm Christian, right? I, I follow Christianity. Well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean? I have the faith to do God's will in all circumstances and to all people. To do this, it demands diligence. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. To do this, how often do I have to have faith in God's will? How often? Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Like clockwork. No, every day, <laughs> right? <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of people tend to take vacations. I know, I did it. You know, I'm, I, I worship God in the daytime, and at nighttime is my time. You know, when I'm alone at night is my time, or the weekends, or Friday night, or Saturday night, or whatever, it's my time. I've already, I've already done my duty to God, you see. I've already worshipped Him. Or for some, they go to church on Sunday, and then it's done. Right? Clean slate. <clears throat> but what this is, is a day-in, day-out obedience to his will. If we don't do that, and not that we're going to succeed at it all the time, because none of us are sinless, but it is that day-in and day-out obedience to his will for the rest of our lives, with all the obstacles that come our way and all the failing and all the falling and all the wrong decisions, all the stupid decisions. And if my motivation is reward to self or even heaven, say my motivation is, you know what? I don't want to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, and, and that is a motivating factor. However, to stand before the judgment seat of Christ is a long way off, isn't it? At least it seems to be. It doesn't seem very imminent to me, even though it actually is. If the rapture happened right, yeah, it never works. But 
you know, my point is, is that you'll lose your momentum in a week or a month because the judgment seat of Christ isn't really coming too soon, is it? If your motivation is personal self-improvement, well, you know what? That takes a long time, too. Personal self-improvement takes uh, dedicated time, day after day after day, for a long period of time before you start to see the fruit of change. And so, you know, same result. I'm really motivated for a week or so. It's the same people who are on diets and exercising, you know. You expect, hey, I dieted all week and I've only lost a pound. In some cases, you gained a pound because you finally got enough water in your body. (laughs) You know. Remember, water, a gallon of water weighs nine pounds, and you've got just about that in your body. If you're dehydrated, you can lose quite a bit of weight. But if you're fully hydrated, I don't know why I'm talking about this right now. It has nothing to do with the subject. Other than you quit on it. Why? Well, you don't see immediate results. What do you stay at day in and day out, even when the results seem far away? What is it that you stick with? And it's the things that you love. And if you love the Lord, see, what Jesus is going to tell Peter, here's your mission. Feed my sheep. Now, Peter's not going to do this very well for the rest of his life until he's martyred. He's not going to do it very well unless he loves the Lord. And Peter proves this, that he, when, when he said, yeah, you know I love you, he was right. So hold your place here. We're going to come back in a second. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter 5, 1. Now here's, uh, Peter writes this epistle late in his life, so... This is about 30 years later, after this conversation with the Lord about, do you love me? We fast forward 30 years. Jesus said, feed and tend my sheep. Notice what Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Elders, presbyteros means, you know, the pastors, the leaders of the church. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. So that's the same words that the Lord said to him. Shepherd my sheep, right? Same thing. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. How am I going to do the will of God? Love the sheep? Well, you are to love the sheep, but if you don't love the Lord, you ain't going to do it. And if you don't love the Lord, you're not going to love the sheep. And not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock, meaning not just teaching it, but living it. For that, you need to love the Lord. And when the chief shepherd appears, the Lord, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter not only fulfilled his ministry, but we see here he's teaching others to do the exact same thing. The thing that the Lord asked him or told him to do. And notice the humble. This is another word that we can throw in the mix when it comes to the love of the Lord. When you love the Lord, you do not want to exalt yourself. You want to exalt Him. It truly is the key to humility. As you you love Him, you become less and less important in your own eyes. And this is vital to living the Christian life right here. God makes war with the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Does Peter love the Lord more than anything else? And it's evidenced here by his life. Now, so that's it for the passage, right? Love the Lord, and you will faithfully do. But we want to add a little more, well, because we can. 
it's, you know, the, the more a context of John 21 uh, gives us a little more application. So go back to John 21, look at verse 1. The context starts the night before. The context of this conversation, do you love me? It starts the night before. <clears throat> Several of the disciples are hanging around the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Galilee, not the gallery. After all that they had been through over the last three and a half years, Jesus has resurrected. All their fears have been assuaged. And Jesus told them, meet me in Galilee. And they went up north to meet him in Galilee. And here they are at the sea. And you can imagine, they're fishermen. Uh, when have they regularly fished in the three and a half years of the ministry with Christ? I'm assuming not much, if at all. And now they're around the familiar sights and smells of the sea. Their old trade is right in front of them. They see the other boats going out and coming in. And Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. So look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's another term for Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's John and James, and, the two, and two other disciples were together. I like how John doesn't care to mention these other two. I'm sure in heaven they're like, hey, John, what gives? You couldn't throw my name in there. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will also come with you. They went out, like in other words, good idea, Peter. And they went out and got into the boat. And at that night, and that night, they caught nothing. Now, this starts to sound familiar. They go out, and they're out in the boat, they're fishing all night, they don't catch anything. As we watch each man taking his place at the oar and getting ready the nets, we recognize how easy it would be for these men to go back to what they used to do. For their whole lives, they were fishermen. Doesn't it seem natural? The ministry of Christ seemingly over. They know they have more to do, but do they really know what they're going to do? They don't really all that much yet. Jesus said, meet him in Galilee. But what are they going to do? Yeah, it's, we know what they're going to do, so you know we might just assume too much about their what's going on in their minds. What's going on in their minds is probably that they're you know uncertain, and what is certain, fishing is certain. They know it, and so. Perhaps they're just killing time or filling time waiting for Jesus to meet them. But think about the way that Jesus appears to them here, the way that he did. Notice in verse 1 again, John says, uh, Jesus manifested himself in this way in verse 1. And so John is making a point out of the way that Jesus does this. They're out fishing all night, not one fish. So, you know, if they thought in their minds they could go back to fishing to make a living, well, you know, maybe they forgot how to do it. I don't know. They're not very successful. And like many people of God's people, you know, we think we know what God wants us to do, and then we head off to do it, and it fails. And we beat ourselves up about it, but do we possibly understand, or do we understand that possibly, the Lord is preparing us for something different. Our failure in one area is God leading us in another. In other words, I'm, and you know what I mean. So they want to go fishing. The Lord's like, well, I'm going to make sure that you don't catch one single fish. Your failure at fishing is me telling you there's something else I want you to do. For you and me, our failure to accomplish whatever it is, it could be. And you need to ask, you need to wait and pray to God. Ask for his guidance. It could be God saying, no, 
I don't want you to do that. I've got something better for you. But in our stubbornness, we, we want to knock the doors down and do what we want to do. So, a seeming stranger from the shore calls out to them, asks, did you catch anything? And he said, no. And the stranger says, wait, why don't you throw your nets on the other side? For some reason, they do it. So, look at verse 4. And when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. So, Jesus said to them, children, do you, not have any, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast a net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Now, this sounds really familiar. (laughs) And of course it is. It's in all the synoptic gospels that Jesus here, performing the exact same miracle, is taking them back three years prior to the very day that he called them. He said, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter was like, all right, caught nothing. All He said, oh, we didn't catch anything all night. There's no reason to go back out. Jesus said, we're going, get, let's go fishing. He's fine, we'll go fishing. Throw your net on the other side. And they had such a catch that they couldn't even haul it in. And that the others, which were the Zebedee boys, had to come and help them. Uh, the Chosen is, does this miracle really well in their first season. So when he takes them back to this time, what did he say to them in Matthew 4.19? He said to them, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Their calling is not to return to the boats, to the fishing. Their calling is to spread the gospel and build the church. And how could Jesus have conveyed this in any better way than to repeat the first miracle he did with them and then call them into shore and then... Sorry, thought it went out. Uh, Then have a chat. And the chat, of course, is... Well, the one that we see or hear that's recorded by John is, Peter, do you love me? Uh, So in verse 7, Peter's so excited that he jumps out of the boat and swims in. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, there's John calling himself the the disciple who who Jesus loved. Uh, There's one case in his gospel where he uses phileo for that the disciple whom Jesus phileoed, and in all other cases, he says it, I think, five times, he uses agape. So it's one of the places where we say, well, there's a grave difference between the two. Therefore, that disciple who Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment, garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Peter doesn't even care to help them lug the whole thing in. He's like, it's the Lord, I'm going to see him. And, you know, and then Peter will now then have this conversation with the Lord, do you love me? And this is important for us because do you love me means are you going to follow my will and be fishers of men or are you going to follow your own will and go back to your old lifestyle? And the same question is put to us all the time. Are we going to go back to our old ways? Are we going to go back to uh, our old lifestyles? And are we going to resist the calling of God upon our lives to do what he wills us to do, whatever that may be? And how in the world are you going to do that? Satan's not going to stand by and not throw opposition. Your flesh isn't going to stand by and not oppose. The world isn't going to just roll out the red carpet and say, here, let's help you do what you need to do. You're going to be opposed. You're going to be criticized you're going to have temptation that's going to cause you to not want to and how in the world over a span of a lifetime now how are you going to follow the Lord the way that he wants you to and that's the love aspect 
It is important for us because the love of the Lord in each of us manifests itself in faith. And that's why I use the picture of him picking up his cross. Jesus said to us, pick up your cross and follow me. Now, if you don't love him, you're not going to do that because picking up your cross is death. It's death to self. It's death to all other things that are against God's will. It is me saying no to all things that are against God's will. That is picking up my cross. Picking up our crosses are death. And we have died with Christ. But this is our, the death of our self-will. The death of our selfishness. The death of our selfish desires. And, you know, it, you could be the person to say, you know, I need to do that. I know I need to do that. And a lot of Christians understand that. I know I need to do that. But they are unsuccessful at doing it. And here is the reason why. They have not learned to love the Lord. Peter turns from trusting fishing to making a living to trusting the Lord. Now, Peter's ministry isn't yours, right? You're not an apostle. You weren't a fisherman, I don't think. So, you know, what is the Lord's calling on your life? Are you trying to do something different than the Lord's calling for whatever reason? Security reasons, financial reasons, acceptance by my peers, or any of another hundred reasons in which I'm going to do it my way because I'm too scared to do it the Lord's way. So, there it is. Now get to it. How well do we do it? Now, I'm talking about those who want to. Those who don't want to, that's why you don't do it. <laughs> right? Right? You have to want to live this life. There's no other way around it. There's no secret magic formula. You have to love the Lord to do this. And so if you do, now I say, well, wait a minute. If I don't do it, do I love the Lord? How about, all right, we'll say yesterday. Uh, yesterday you had an epic failure. That epic failure snowballed because you didn't do the will of the Lord. You didn't consider the Lord. You went your own way and made your own decisions and you blew it fantastically. The ramifications of that explosive sin just went everywhere and you caused havoc at least for a whole day, maybe two. And you think to yourself, do I love the Lord? Do I? We might think that our failure to live up to the Lord's calling upon us perfectly, I must say perfectly, is a sign that we don't love him. Imagine Peter now for three days after the Lord's death. He denied him three times. The third time he said, I do not know the man. And then Jesus looked right at him. As soon as he, as soon as he finished, as soon as it came out of his mouth, Jesus comes out of Caiaphas' house and looks straight at Peter. For three days, Jesus is dead and Peter has no comfort. Three days he has to live with that guilt. Now, um, Peter also knows that Judas betrayed the Lord. Do you think in Peter's mind that he thinks that he's about comparable with Judas Iscariot? I guarantee he did that there wasn't really all that much difference between the betrayal of Judas Iscariot and the betrayal of Peter, who just hours before said, Lord, I will die for you. But think about it. How different were the betrayals of Peter and Judas? A great deal. A great deal. We all fail to live up to our calling at times. Jesus didn't ask that. He didn't say, Peter, you sorry you did what you did. And I'm sure he didn't have to. Peter's incredibly sorry he did what he did. You know, we let down our Lord. It's, 
being sorry doesn't forgive sin. The blood of Christ forgives sin. But having a contrite and broken heart over sin is a manifestation of the fact that you really long to please the Lord. So we do. Now we mourn over it. And even when we greatly mourn, and if you've had those days where like I have, where you've greatly mourned over that sin and you're like, I feel so bad about it, I'm sure I won't do it again. Well, you proved yourself wrong, you did it again. Jesus doesn't ask that. He didn't ask, are you willing to be perfect, Peter? Because you know, you're going to lead my disciples and I need a perfect man for the job. He didn't ask him that. He asked him, do you love me? We can really beat ourselves, ourselves up over failure. And so, as I was working on this, I had a major failure the day that I read this passage. And it lifted the guilt off of me. So I want to share it with you. It's from Marcus Dodds in his, his uh, commentary on the Gospel of John concerning this passage. He says, quote, We also must distinguish between the forgetfulness of Christ, and there he means our forgetting of Christ, to which we are carried by the blinding and confusing throng of the world's ways and fashions and temptations and a betrayal of Christ that has in it something deliberate. In other words, Judas, Judas's betrayal of the Lord was premeditated and deliberate. Peter had every intention to be the strong man for the Lord. He failed miserably because he wasn't strong. <coughs> so, again, we also must distinguish between the forgetfulness, our forgetfulness of Christ, to which we are carried by the blinding and confusing throng of the world's ways and fashions and temptations and a betrayal of Christ that has in it something deliberate. We admit that we have acted as if we had no desire to serve Christ or to bring our whole life into his kingdom. But it is one thing to deny Christ through thoughtlessness, through inadvertence, through sudden passion or insidious unperceived temptation, Another thing, consciously or habitually, to betake ourselves to ways which he condemns and to let the whole form, appearance, and meaning of our life plainly declare that our regard for him is very slight when compared with our regard for success in our calling or anything that nearly touches our personal interests. Dodds writes well. Uh, the comfort there is, are you the kind of person who consciously and habitually goes towards things that God condemns? Or do you truly desire to serve the Lord, but at times you're thoughtless and sudden passions and insidious, unperceived temptation overtake you and you give in to it? And as Dodds hears, I agree with him. That despite the fact that Peter denied the Lord three times, when the Lord asked him point blank, do you love me? Peter honestly and sincerely affirms his love for the Lord. Yeah, I do. So getting back to that first slide. Now if you failed this, as I did, I tried this a few times, you know, tried to erase my mind, which the older I get is getting a lot easier. And I just said, all right, do it again. I love, and I filled in the blank. Sometimes food came up, <laughs> sometimes other things that I'm not willing to admit. And, you know, like, okay, yeah, I got some work to do. But despite my past and my track record, if the Lord were to stand in front of me right now and I know that He knows all things and He asked me, do you love me? I would have to say yes. What about you? And it's very encouraging because that is the question the Lord asked the disciples before He hands the keys to the kingdom to them. Not are you great scholars, not do you know it all, not do you get it all right, but 
do you love me? Happy is the man who, with Peter, can say without question that despite his blunders, his attempts in greed and for gain and for self-glory, can say, Lord, you know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. It's super encouraging. A Christian is often conscious. What if I was judged solely by my conduct? What if you and I were judged? This was it. This was the judgment. Your conduct. All of us would be condemned. But that is not the judgment. My judgment went upon Christ. And so I am justified. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, can Peter spend the rest of his life denying the Lord? He wouldn't make much of an apostle. If the smallest threat, if any threat to Peter, which he is going to be threatened, all the apostles are going to be threatened with their lives. If he won't speak up for the Lord when it's dangerous, he is not going to make an apostle. But the Lord is, the Lord Jesus is just super confident that Peter will, and he does. But not on his own, with the Lord's help. The apostles are going to need the Holy Spirit. That's going to come in the day of Pentecost. We have the Holy Spirit forever. They're going to need more instruction. We have all of their instruction. They're going to need the will to do what God has told them to do and leave behind the things that God doesn't want them to do and they're going to have the power to do that because they love the Lord. You and I have to also, as Jesus said, pick up your cross and deny yourself daily, he says. And we have to do that also. So, Christianity, another definition of Christianity one is to say it's the faith to do God's will in all things and to all people. Christianity is also God's way of getting hold of us and of attaching to us what is good and making us holy. We are made by God perfectly and forever holy. It was, Christianity is God's way of grabbing hold of us and attaching to us that which is good. In his supernatural way, he gives us this love, but and I, I think about things like this, you know, God says he pours out his love to us, because now, after this now, we've got to go back to our love for others. More of that needs to be discussed, because that's truly what we're commanded to do, and mostly, and to love others, I have to love the Lord. To love others, I've got to feed them. He didn't say just feed the good sheep. I've got to serve and feed all of them, including my enemies. How am I going to do that if I don't love the Lord? Other motivations are going to come far short. But love for the Lord lasts a lifetime. Love lies deeper than the will. So, last thing. I need this love, right? If I'm, I'm going to do this, I don't know how God does it, but he puts it in the, in, inside every Christian, the desire to do this, to do this. And I'm going to do this. Can I say by my own will, I'm going to love others? In other words, I'm going to I'm just do it. And we can't. You can't love anything by will. Right? I mean, in the history of the human race, people love things that they shouldn't love and things they should love they don't. Um, people fall in love with other people who are bad for them. Like this love, love is love. It's a, it's a desire, a strong desire. In this case, it's not the desire of human love, but it has similarities to it. And one thing that's true about both God's love and human love is that in us, we can't just will ourselves to do it. I can't say, you know what, today I'm going to love, and that's it. So, we have to find the means by which the love of God, the agape love of God to our neighbor, 
must come in us and be a part of us and be in harmony with who we are in Christ. We have to find that out. And that's what we're going to start tackling tomorrow. How do we go from this love of God to the love of others? And actually, and for both, the love of God and the love of others, how do I get that manifested in myself? I can't will it to be, so there has to be a means. And God does provide the means. We'll look at that tomorrow. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and the means by which you have loved us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his cross. May you, Father, through your word and your gospel, speak to each one of us to show us the way and the means by which we should and do love you. Let us be honest about our love towards you and our love towards others. Increase our faith, build us up. Increase our love and our faith so that we will serve you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.